So I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I have a new approach to talks. Um, and part of my new approach is just kind of listening, uh, paying attention and listening during the week to see what particular theme arises for me that I'd like to focus on for the talk. So at some point during the week, this week, um, I was awake in the middle of the night, as I sometimes am. And when I'm not a yogi, uh, I often read a little in the night if I'm awake. So I picked up one of my favorite middle-of-the-night reading materials, which is a, a magazine called The Sun. Maybe some of you know it. Uh, it's a journal of writings that people submit, a lot of memoirs and uh, fiction. and uh, The parts that I like the best are the, the true stories. And there's a section in the magazine called Readers Write, where they have a theme each month. And readers write in sort of little uh, letters more than a whole article. And the theme in this new issue that I opened up the other night was walking home. And I read these various entries about walking home, that theme. And I thought, walking. <laughs> walking as a meditation practice. And I liked the fact that it said walking home because I kind of resonated with the home as sort of our true home, the place that we're arriving in our practice as we arrive here, now, together. So the theme tonight is walking. And I've never given a whole talk on walking, um, but I think it's really, it warrants a talk, partly because I think as a form, as a practice, it's, um, it's a bit of a sort of second cousin, <laughs> or it can, be seem, it can seem that way to sitting practice. It can seem slightly underappreciated or undervalued, only because it's not as often discussed. You know, we get some instruction on meditation retreats about walking. But then when we refer to practice, we so often refer to sitting as the form. And also, we don't see a lot of Buddha images where he's walking. I love the one next door where he's standing. It would be nice to see some images, some... Uh, figures of the Buddha taking a step. So I think this lack of emphasis can tend to lead to this misperception that walking is a kind of secondary practice. And I think also maybe there's something in the fact that we sit and the emphasis on sitting and that practice, in a way, is taking place in the mind, or more in the mind, 
which is true and not true, because even sitting, you know, the awareness is there in the body with the breath, with the sensations, but it can tend to be less clear than it is with walking, where it's really an embodied awareness. Last week in my talk, I mentioned that I'd recently um, lost a friend, a, a dear old friend who died recently. And in those days after my friend's death, there was um, an exchange that I had with someone next door at the retreat center where they told me this story that I think they had heard on um, the radio on NPR about a man who had lost his son. And the way that he worked with that was he walked. He really walked. He just started walking. (laughs) And he kept walking for months. And when this person told me the story, it kind of made me well up with just the appreciation of that, the resonance. It was as though my body really resonated with that idea that to integrate something that profound as the loss of a child, one might choose to walk with it. And so Friday, just three days ago, I stayed home. I live about uh, 10, 11 miles from here. And when I'm not working at the affiliated centers in the neighborhood, I am at home. So I decided I would stay home on Friday to think about my talk for tonight, do some work on it. And it was morning, and I was in the kitchen, and I was sitting in a rocking chair in the kitchen, and my husband was moving around. And at some point, he stopped in front of these big windows that we had in the kitchen, and he just stood and looked out the windows, and he signaled to me, and he said, get up quietly, slowly, come here. And look, and I got up and looked out the windows, and there was this enormous moose walking through our yard, like right toward the house. It was coming out of the woods and walking straight. We have a big, long yard with a big vegetable garden and a lot of open space, and the moose was (laughs) just walking straight for the house. And we just stood and watched, and the snow was hard enough that morning that the moose would take a step and its foot would sort of pause on the snow, as it, and then it would break through. So it was this kind of step, pause, break through. And it just walked so slowly, sort of around the garden, and it stopped to chew on our apple trees. <laughs> and then it walked into the woods and eventually disappeared back into the woods. It was so big <laughs> and so thrilling, really, to see an animal of that size uh, so closely. Um, But also, I just, because I was sitting there that morning with the theme of walking, somehow watching this creature walk into the yard, and just, it looked like walking meditation, because it was walking so slowly. You know, the steps just seemed so deliberate. It was just a moose taking a slow stroll to the apple trees, but it looked 
like walking meditation, and it was it was really lovely. So I took that as the last sign that <laughs> walking was where I was going. <clears throat> so of course we know and we're trained in our practice that walking is one of the four postures for meditation along with sitting, standing, and lying down. I think maybe lying down is also a neglected practice, and actually maybe standing (laughs) as well. These bodies that we inhabit as human beings, they're meant to move. They're designed for movement. They're designed for work, really. So to incorporate walking practice very much contributes to a sense of uh, balance in our experience as meditators, as practitioners. It's first of all just that balance on an energetic level to the stillness of sitting. If we sit and are still for hours in a day, it's quite a nice balance and important balance to move the body and not to just uh, take a walk, to move it when it's a part of practice, when the body is um, filled with awareness, when we make that our aim, our practice. And I think there's also something, at least I feel as though I experience this in my own practice, there's something about being in movement in the body that allows or helps helps facilitate energies and different things that are arising in the body to continue to move through. So there's a way in which being aware, as aware as we can be as a practice in movement, also helps to keep these energies and, uh, in our systems moving freely. found this lovely little passage that I think talks about this kind of balance that walking can provide. This is a book called Gifts of the Spirit, Living the Wisdom of the Great Religious Traditions. So it draws on different traditions, but this is a a section on uh, walking as a contemplative practice. A good friend of mine sums up his passion for walking like this. When I'm angry and need to let off steam, I walk. When I'm blue and need some cheering up, I walk. When I'm churned up and I need to calm down, I walk. When I want to think or dream or taste the world, As it is, I walk. 
my friend, who has worn out several pairs of shoes on his hikes, likes to quote this line from George Macaulay Trevelyan. I have two doctors, my left foot and my right. I meant to actually offer at the beginning of this talk, in terms of full disclosure, I love to walk. <laughs> and I actually really have learned to love walking meditation as a practice, to appreciate it so much. And it didn't come easily. It took some cultivation. In the beginning, I just did it because I was told to do it. <laughs> And it kind of felt like filler. And over time, it really opened up for me as a very significant place of practice, perhaps for me more um, fruitful than the sitting time. I remember being told at some point by some teacher that there were masters, meditation masters, you know, in different places. In Burma was the one I was hearing about, who just did walking practice. And I was reassured by that. This was once I had really developed this connection to walking. So I think that walking can really help provide that kind of balance in the way that that person was describing. When the energy's churned up, it's helpful to walk, to let it settle and smooth out. When we're really flagging and the energy's low, it's helpful to walk. It helps bring the energy up. That actually doing something that requires a bit more energy helps provide or helps, uh, helps the energy to uh, arise, to brighten. The other thing that's interesting about walking practice is I find, and perhaps you do as well, uh, it's very conducive to concentration. For some of us, even more so than sitting. And it's the same dedication, really, of energy to one-pointedness, only we're not focusing, we're not taking as our focus the breath. It's that dedication of energy or effort to being fully present. And it's training in that way, in this embodied awareness, on the level of sensations, where we tune in really closely to what we're feeling in the foot, in the leg, in the body. This is a really... Um, important shift or an important uh, way to learn to practice, to notice the difference between perception or concepts and the experience underneath it, the sensations. And as you may well know, it's really, it's very possible to get very, very focused in this way. So sometimes the walking really slows down and there's that very close attention 
to the subtlest of sensations, this is when we're quite concentrated. I can't remember if I've told this story in this particular round of teaching, so forgive me if it's a rerun, but um, there was a time when I was doing walking practice next door and I got really very concentrated. It's just with the walking. And you know how sometimes when you're really steady and the concentration is strong in the walking and something else arises, you kind of have to stop to attend to that before you take the next step. So in this experience of mine, sound came really strongly just built, actually, and got stronger and stronger. And I was just standing, being very attentive to this amazing sound. It was quite um, varied and rich and full of all these different um, tones and vibrations, quite compelling. And then, I don't know how long (laughs) this went on. I don't think so long. You know how it can seem longer when you're in the experience. But at a certain point, I opened my eyes, and there was a delivery truck idling, a big truck with this loud idling engine. And that was the sound that I had been completely absorbed into. (laughs) So this evening, sometimes before I come to give a talk, I'll kind of touch on its themes or run it by my husband over dinner, you know, sort of tell him my talk, not in in the full detail, but I was telling my husband this talk this evening at dinner, and I mentioned this story, and when I said, and then I opened my eyes and it was this truck, he cracked up and he said, I've been in that truck, I've been that delivery person, (laughs) waiting for that yogi to to open their eyes and get out of the way, (laughs) because he's a contractor and he does work next door. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) I think one of the other incredibly important things about walking practice is the continuity that it provides for our practice. And again, in a couple of different ways. One, just in terms of the unfolding of our day as a yogi on retreat. To move from sitting to walking. To really dedicate the energy and attention to developing a walking practice. We're so much of the time in movement, even as we leave the hall and go to the walking place or as we're going to the next thing, our yogi job, or a meal, or an interview, we're in movement. So that training in the walking, in the formal walking, carries over so that none of those times are left out. So that the whole of the day has that sense of a flow where it's not so much about the form. It's more like Awareness sitting, and then awareness standing, and awareness walking, awareness eating, 
washing dishes. And I think working with a walking practice helps to bring that continuity. So it supports it when we're yogis in terms of our day, but also in terms of living a life that's more and more awake, more and more mindful. Again, we're so much of the time in movement. It's just incredibly, it makes so much sense to develop mindfulness in movement. Because so much of our day is that. So much of our life is that. So really making an effort in walking practice, one can get very concentrated. So it can be a real support for concentration. And on the other hand, if you find that you're straining in your practice, particularly if you feel like you don't really have a relationship with walking that um, is easy, if it's more of a challenge, more of an effort, you might like to experiment with a different form. And I just want to describe a form that I've found uh, quite lovely and quite uh, powerful. There's a way in which this particular form of walking is both uh, conducive to concentration, to the mind settling, but also spacious. And this is where the walking's done in four parts. So rather than just focusing on the sensations, for example, throughout the period of walking practice, one would start, you know, you still walk back and forth between point A and point B, but for the first leg, the attention is with seeing. And it's not going after sights, you know, naming objects of sights, looking for anything. It's much more receptive where one is moving and aware at the, at the visual field. Just aware of sights, color, image being received at the eyes. So one takes one leg of the journey seeing, and you might even make a mental note to remind you, seeing, seeing. And then a pause, <clears throat> turn around, the next leg, hearing, same thing. Not looking for any particular sounds, just tuning into that sense door. And again, with that quality of receptivity, just receiving sound at the ears and noticing when the mind brings the concepts out. Just noticing that. That's a thought, a concept. Back to the direct sensation of hearing. So seeing, hearing. The third leg is uh, walking. And this is a full body experience where it's just a sense, the way I like to think of it is as a sense of the body 
moving through space. So a kind of full body awareness just in movement. Seeing, hearing, walking, and finally touching. And this is the contact with the foot, what we're more familiar with in walking practice on the ground. So if walking hasn't quite been your cup of tea and you'd like to experiment, you might try that practice. I've found it to be quite uh, rich. A talk about walking, of course, is really a talk about mindfulness of body, really the first foundation of mindfulness, developing that awareness in the body. And I think the other piece that I notice that I find interesting in awareness in the body is the sense that we can trust the body. In a way, it's much, in a way, it's sometimes more trustworthy than the mind. At least in my experience, I've noticed it can be much simpler. So noticing again, just what the body is feeling versus the stories that the mind is telling about those feelings. I find this um, training really helpful uh, in terms of bringing it into daily life situations. When there are difficult circumstances and the mind is reacting, you know, the image, the, the most clear example of that in my recent history in the past few years was living with my stepson when he was struggling quite a bit in his life and had a lot of anger and a lot of projection and blame as he was grappling with his growing up. And sometimes there, this would be going on and I could just feel the mind, uh, and hear the mind, <laughs> reacting and taking it personally and wanting to defend and argue and, you know. And then I would just come back to the body and feel the tension, feel the contraction, the reactivity in terms of sensations in the body. And it was so much simpler, so much easier to open to that and actually breathe into it and relax it. So this is something, again, that I think you may already know, but it's interesting to look at how sometimes relaxing the contraction in the body allows the mind to let go of the stories.
in the dinner discussion with my husband, who his spiritual training was in the uh, Gurdjieff tradition. And he told me that one of the teachers in his uh, years of practice there told them that if they could just fully, this was in sitting, if they could just fully, completely relax the body, that was one of the most important things. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) But then I was thinking about this piece, how for me I notice um, that I can come back to the body when the mind is in a tangle or a knot or some kind of reactivity. Or even sometimes in practice the way I feel that I'm kind of leaning in or looking for the next experience. And if I can come back to the body and settle back and relax the body, that feeling in the mind can let go. Check it out in your own experience. I think that sometimes we don't trust the body. We don't trust that experience of being embodied. And that The Buddhist teachings are presented often uh, with such uh, beauty and uh, precision and a lot of words and uh, spelling out of how things unfold. And we think that we need to know that in our minds or we think that we understand it and access it with our thoughts. I don't know about you, it's more often for me in my body. So just, again, that I think the body is worthy of that kind of trust. It's interesting also to look at the ways that we understand some of the some parts of the teaching in terms of our bodies, how, it's, how they're known and experienced in our bodies. So, for example, the three characteristics. Impermanence. Theoretically, we know the truth of change, and we see it all around us in this world on a daily basis, if we really look. And we know it very directly, very uh, intimately, if you will, very personally, in the experience of the body. Last week I was talking about death and aging as a contemplation in practice, as an area of investigation and insight. And it's really that piece of the experience of living in a body, the, the aging body, the changing body, the dying body at some point, that we very directly touch this truth of impermanence. But also, on another level, simply the... the passing of experiences 
in the body. That level of impermanence or change. Sometimes certain pleasant states arise. Calm or tranquility, peace, joy, ease. It's so uh, nourishing to experience those kinds of states. And they change. They pass. And we know that directly if we're paying attention, if there's that sense of embodied presence. And the second characteristic, unsatisfactoriness. I don't know about you, but I occasionally experience unsatisfactoriness in the body. The most basic level of this kind of dukkha is pain, painful sensation, painful feelings. And they're experienced in the body. And also the pain of those changing conditions that I just mentioned, that even when there are pleasant experiences arising, they don't last, they change. It's interesting to notice how we manage or navigate this terrain in the body, the terrain of pain or unpleasantness. So often, we make it worse by adding layers of resistance or contraction to it. And we know in our meditation practice that it's much more manageable when we have the energy, the interest, the willingness or the courage to enter into it, to bring attention, to bring awareness right into those places of discomfort or pain. It's, it's an interesting area to notice the difference between pain and suffering. Pain can be quite strong at times in the body. I think the way that we use suffering, that word, in, in Buddhist circles is really that we add the suffering of the mind onto those painful experiences. And that is adding resistance, adding fear of the future, that it will last forever. So often, even very strong, painful experience is bearable in the moment. But when we add the unknowable and the unnavigable future to it, it feels unbearable. That's when it becomes suffering. I remember on one retreat where I was just experiencing a lot of restlessness. But it was that kind of restlessness that is so 
acute. It feels excruciating. Have you experienced that? Just this unbearable energy in the body. And I remember writing a note to Sharon Salzberg and saying, you know, kind of jokingly, has anybody ever died of restlessness? I mean, I felt like I just couldn't bear it. And she wrote back the perfect response, which was, never from just one moment at a time of it. And it was like, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) I was adding that unknowable future to it, and it felt unbearable. In the moment, it was strong and intense and bearable. And then the third characteristic, selflessness. This is the one that I feel I have uh, the most, um, often the most interest in when I'm practicing, or it becomes the most apparent. Just that difference between this idea of self and then tuning in on that level beneath concept that deeper level of just the actual sensations in the body. What is it that we call self? I mean, it's a useful term. And so we'll hold it out here as useful and important. And on this other level of practice, it's so interesting to shift from my foot my leg, my body, to that direct knowing of that fluctuating range of experience of sensations that actually is what we see and what we feel when we pay attention, when we bring awareness into the body. There are times when practicing like this, the the boundaries or the borders, the edges of the body become, they feel more porous. We're just tuning into the fact that actually we are energy. Everything is. But I think we become quite aware of that at times in practice, that energy field as it's flowing and changing as we're experiencing it versus the body. I remember one time on a retreat next door, I was walking in the dining room and I was in that kind of place in practice, just really tuned in to that level of sensation and doing very slow walking and I would get to the wall, and I would stand there right next to the wall before turning and have this feeling like I could just keep going (laughs) and walk right through the wall because there wasn't any wall and there wasn't any body, if you know what I mean. So I went and reported this in an interview to Joseph, and he said, well, did you try it? (laughs) 
And I had to say, no, <laughs> I didn't try it. It was just a passing feeling. <laughs> but there are ways, or and there are ways that we can feel that way, that lack of solidity, that lack of identification with self. Another area that's so interesting and so apparent in walking practice is causality. The way that intention precedes action. It's said that intentions arise before everything that we do, that we are. And yet they're so fleeting, they're so subtle. It's such a hard area to really see very clearly often. But in walking, you know, if one is walking slowly, one can actually start to tune in. What gets the foot from here to there? I remember standing at one point in my walking practice and just being in awe that I was moving. <laughs> How does that happen? And just tuning into that level of intending to lift, intending to move, and then the movement, the intending to place the foot down. It's pretty amazing, really, to be in these bodies. And that kind of leads me to just a couple of things to touch on in terms of attitudes or uh, approaches to walking practice. That sense of awe is something that might arise at times. Gratitude. So often we focus on what's not working what's difficult, what's challenging, our limitations. Just to shift the focus and actually appreciate and experience gratitude for being in this body that can sit here this evening, that can do this practice, that can feed itself and be nourished It's pretty amazing. I remember a few years ago there was a show circulating around the country. Um, I forget what it was called, but it was of uh, human bodies and the different systems. So they showed the skeletal system, the nervous system. People had actually donated their bodies for this purpose. So these were actual bodies where you got to see the organs and the bones and the nerves and the circulatory system. It felt like uh, the privilege that um, doctors and you know anyone in medical profession gets to experience in their training of really 
becoming intimate with the body in that way as a part of their learning. And I remember going through this show and just being interested, you know, really paying attention. And when I left, it had a kind of remarkable effect, which was that it, in a way, kind of invited my awareness into those systems in my own body. So when I was walking down the street in Boston afterwards, I just felt so in awe. This amazing machine, this amazing mechanism that a body is. And not only awe, but again, a kind of um, like my awareness had gotten in, (laughs) gotten into my bones and my blood and my nerves and organs. I kind of danced down the street just, you know, amazed in movement and appreciation. Also, I think there's a kind of a way that we can approach Uh, mindfulness of the body that has to do with a kind of integrity. It's kind of something along the lines of taking our place here on the planet, in this body, in this form. And I'm reminded of the, yeah, that posture of the Buddha, of reaching down and touching the earth, that connection with the earth, with what feels to me like embodiment, that claiming his right to be here practicing. We can access that also in our bodies and in the posture of the body. Standing, you know, that sense of planting our feet on the earth, raising our head toward the heavens, which tonight are so filled with sparkling stars. I read this quote from a Native American elder, Black Elk, who said, In that pose of standing with feet on the ground and head toward the sky or the heavens, that we become an axis or a link between matter and spirit. There's a certain integrity in that. And then finally, I just wanted to touch on the thought of pilgrimage in this theme of walking and in this theme of being embodied. That we might have an attitude of pilgrimage. I looked pilgrimage up in the dictionary and it said, a journey, especially a long one, made to some sacred place as an act of devotion, or undertaken in a quest of something. 
So both, to me, seemed potentially relevant to what we're doing here in our practice. And I'd like to finish with just sharing this story about pilgrimage. In December 1968, two men arrive at the Buddhist shrine in Palonarua in Sri Lanka. Man A is amazed by the grandeur of the giant reclining rock statues of Buddha. He remembers the giant Thanksgiving Day balloons in New York, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. He takes photos and writes postcards. Man B is also stunned. He writes in his journal, I was suddenly almost forcibly jerked clean out of the habitual half-tied vision of things and an inner cleanness, clarity, as if exploding from the rocks themselves became evident, obvious. I don't know when in my life I have ever had such a sense of beauty and spiritual validity fusing together in one aesthetic illumination. Man A is a nameless tourist. Man B is the Catholic contemplative monk Thomas Merton. Both travelers started in America and both wound up in the same Asian glade. How can we distinguish between them? In just this way. Man A was on a trip, while Merton was on a pilgrimage. For Man A, a journey is largely an outward trek, although it may leave an inner residue in the form of pleasant memories. For Merton, however, as for any pilgrim, the journey is inward and outward at the same time. The map of Merton's travels reveals a remarkable double path, one leading to this pilgrimage site, the other to the center of his heart. We spend our days in movement. Each day we travel through 16 hours and a good handful of miles, even if we mark off the ladder by vacuuming, dusting, and mopping our way through the house. This is but our outward journey. We must each ask the question, is there an inner, inner, inward one as well? How can I make my day a pilgrimage? Sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.